Hello, this is Dan Frazier, and today we'll be mapping tube feeding on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix Special Nutrition Therapy Series, where we're going to dive into the approaches, practices, dietary theories, and healing foods and modalities that have been used in the most successful practices across the globe and throughout history. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. The 15-Minute Matrix is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons which highlight the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition, and that's the functional matrix. The functional nutrition matrix reminds us of three very important factors in our clinical care. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Dan Frazier. Dan is an advanced practice dietitian and certified nutrition support clinician. Through his previous work as a clinical dietitian, he became interested in the lack of whole food options for individuals with feeding tubes and the discrepancy between a health-promoting diet and what is present in commercial formula. Dan currently works for a company that makes whole food meals for individuals with feeding tubes. Hey, Dan, welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Hello, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited about this topic, and I know you and I have talked about it in the past. Can you just start us off by speaking into what tube feeding actually means and maybe the different ways in which a tube might be inserted into the body? So tube feeding for for anyone out there is kind of synonymous with the term enteral nutrition. It just means nutrition being delivered directly into your GI tract. So that typically is through a tube that's placed in your stomach, also called a G-tube. Sometimes it's a tube that's past your stomach in your duodenum or your jejunum that typically is called a J-tube. So really the whole purpose of tube feeding is to bypass swallowing and delivering nutrition straight to the person. And when we were talking last time, one of the things I loved about our conversation, Dan, is looking at some of the history of what tube feeding was and kind of how and why we humans figured this out. Can you speak through that a little bit? Yeah, well, you know, I'm a history nerd, so stop me if I'm going to to on too much about it. But there's this article out there that I love. It's called The History of Enteral Nutrition, so pretty to the point. And it really reviews how people have been fed via a feeding tube for decades. And prior to the inception of formula, people were fed food. So whether you were a hospital, a patient, a healthcare practitioner, you were blending up food and putting it through a feeding tube. And what that article that I just mentioned really outlines is that formula didn't become a standard of practice because it was superior to food or else, you know, 
people who eat by mouth would just drink tube feeding formula. It really became common because hospitals were really focused on sterile products and procedures in the 60s and 70s, which of course now we know feeding your gut only something that's sterile is definitely not good for it. And the second reason is that it saved nurses time. So it really was never that formula was better for people than food. It just kind of was the easeability of using it. Yeah, I definitely want to get into those distinctions as we're moving our way there, which I think will help us to see some of the connections of why we need real foods. What are the reasons why somebody would be getting a G or a J tube? Oh my goodness. There's numerous reasons. There's a uh, a non-for-profit feeding tube awareness, and they've identified over like a hundred different reasons someone may wow. have a feeding tube. And really what it comes down to is that you either are unable to eat by mouth. So you have some, some mm-hmm. issue with swallowing and, and whatever the diagnosis behind that is, say head and neck cancer, for instance, Or some people have a feeding tube place because they aren't eating enough and they're malnourished and they need a little bit of help getting kind of those calories and grams of protein in. And are there clear numbers that we know of between short-term and long-term use of feeding tubes? It's funny you mentioned that because Medicare actually just revise their standards for enteral nutrition to state that we'll actually remove this verbiage they used to use saying that in order to get it covered by insurance, the feeding tube needed to be placed for three months. And now that no longer exists, I think because they recognize A, the number of people with a feeding tube is growing and B, there's a lot of variability on how long that person may have a feeding tube. So you know, no one has kind of a a crystal ball that can really tell them how long someone may need a feeding tube. Say you have it placed because you're experiencing dysphagia and then through working with a therapist, you are able to reduce that dysphagia and eat enough by mouth within a month or it could be a, a year. Like no one really ever knows truly how long someone will need a feeding tube for. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's get into that topic of formula versus real food. You touched on the 60s and the 70s and that shift that was primarily about convenience for the hospital, the hospital staff. What other factors are there, cost factors? What is making us rely fully on this malnourished state to put in the body? I think that's a good question and kind of what you were mentioning. I think it is multifactorial. So we talked about the history behind it and really there was a paradigm shift within the nutrition space to go from food to formula. But one thing I want to note is that not everyone was on board. So there was a, a group at Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit and they are quoted in that article I was talking about, History of Enteral Nutrition, they didn't want to use formula. They felt that everything that is in food, the phytonutrients, bioactives, couldn't be replicated in a formula. So I like to point out here that 
even though clinicians, and I, I'm speaking from the perspective of a clinical dietitian, have been kind of indoctrinated into using formula, not everyone was on board back in the 60s and 70s. So, so start from there. And then over the past decade, there's been a whole bunch of research really demonstrating unsurprisingly that, you know, vegetables are good for us and that whole foods (laughs) typically lead to better outcomes for people with feeding tubes. But I I guess to answer your question, to backtrack a little bit, I think I touched on just a second ago, the indoctrination into using formula. Healthcare professionals have been told for decades by formula companies that using food through a feeding tube is going to clog the tube or it's going to cause foodborne illness. So I believe there has been kind of a an industry influence for a lot of people who work with individuals with feeding tubes that has kind of made them hesitant fearful. to use. Yeah, fearful, yeah. exactly, to using food. Yeah. I mean, that's what I was kind of driving towards. Like, where does this come from? And you said it really beautifully that there is this industry messaging that makes practitioners fearful, but then also I'm assuming, and I'm assuming you've seen this, makes families fearful that they're going to be doing harm by introducing real foods into a feeding tube. Yeah. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, that messaging kind of trickles down to the families and the end consumer. So it's kind of like the clinicians are telling those families exactly what they have been told from the industry for the past few decades. But the good news is I think that that largely is changing. I mentioned the number of people with a feeding tube is growing and they're living longer. So gone are the days of here's your formula for the next decade of your life. No, people with with feeding tubes are just like people who eat by mouth. And there's a big movement and interest in whole foods and not just accepting a standard formula. Yeah. And you talked about the sterilization of the food and that being a factor that doesn't serve our nutrient needs. When we look at the formulas that are primarily used out there, are there other obvious nutrient deficiencies that we're seeing people have when they're relying on these formulas? That's a really good question. And I think it depends on on really how you define a nutrient deficiency. So I think in order to answer it, I'd, I'd want to back up and, and just point out that formulas macronutrient content all comes from isolates and vegetable oils and high glycemic index sources of carbohydrate. So right off the bat, I'm thinking, well, there's definitely a deficiency in complex carbs and fiber because those are, I don't want to say virtually non-existent because I I don't want to you know, make a comment that's too disparaging, but the fiber has to be added from a synthetic source. And we know, of course, that functional fiber from a synthetic source is a lot different than dietary fiber. So right off the bat, formulas, just macronutrients aren't from whole foods. So that is clearly a sign of a deficiency in that area. And then in terms of micronutrients, formulas largely label themselves as being nutritionally complete. However, that doesn't guarantee that every single person's unique needs are going to be met. 
And even using a quote unquote nutritionally complete formula can still lead to a micronutrient deficiency. So for instance, sometimes formulas don't meet recommendations for vitamin D. That would be one instance. Mm -hmm. And then the last pillar that I think of is just everything that's inherent to food that we don't necessarily fully understand. So again, you you can't replicate the phytonutrients and bioactives that are inherent to food. And those things are missing in a formula because there are no whole food sources in them. Let's flip it a little bit and look at what real food formulas do for us. What kind of outcomes have you seen with the utilization of real food formulas in a feeding tube? My goodness. Well, I mean, anecdotally, I can talk to you all day about how people just have crazy, amazing improvements in not only their clinical symptoms, but also just their quality of life through having food through their feeding tube. But if you want to focus on the research, there is a lot of research out there from the spectrum of starting at pediatrics all the way to adult patients that shows that blenderized tube feeding leads to improvement in negative GI symptoms. So think anything that that people obviously don't want to deal with, nausea, vomiting, gagging, retching, diarrhea, constipation, bloating, you name it. The research also demonstrates that individuals who put food or whole foods through their feeding tube typically have improved quality of life. And the last point is that they potentially have reduced healthcare costs. And that's an important one to point out. I know one of the questions earlier you had mentioned, is there a financial aspect to this? And there is, you know, food is is more expensive than formula, but research has really demonstrated that there's the potential for tens of thousands of dollars in healthcare cost savings because people who put food through their feeding tube typically are admitted less to the hospital and have less ER visits. So I think that's something really important to point out just in the context of of this whole feeding tube world. Yes, such an important point there. Is there a difference between some of the real food formulas like we can purchase and like you work in or the ones that we might make at home? Yeah, definitely. So with with blenderized tube feeding, blenderized diet, those are synonymous terms. There's basically two approaches that someone might take. They may home blend, which is great. So they're going to need a blender and they're going to just really blend up the foods they're using at home. And then on the flip side, there are commercial blenderized products that are typically covered by insurance. They're shelf stable. So it takes out the work of having to blend yourself. And there is variability within that category. So unsurprisingly, there used to be not very many products in that category. And now over the past seven years, there's a bunch because companies are meeting consumer demand. Now, with that being said, not every product is created equal. There are plenty of products out there that are marketing themselves as as being whole food that may actually not have any true blended food in it, meaning the food that's present may be a juice concentrate or a powder derivative, but isn't a true blended food. 
And then some of them still contain added sugar. So whether it's agave syrup or maltodextrin or brown rice syrup, I always tell consumers, you know, check that ingredient label and see what the ingredients are. And for some of these products, you're going to see an added sugar as still the second ingredient. So it's important if you're going to use a commercial product to really choose one that truly is just pureed, blenderized whole foods without any of the other added stuff. I know everybody's going to want to know your recommendations. I know you have one favorite, (laughs) but do you have two or three favorites that you would point us towards? Sure. Well, hey, you know, I think for people who have the time and are motivated, I think home blending is the best option, in my opinion, because you have complete control over what you're feeding yourself. And I think that's a beautiful thing. I also think it guarantees probably the freshest food as well. So if you have the time to home blend, I think it's great. But of course, I also can appreciate not everyone has the time to do that. You know, we lead busy lives. So commercial products out there that are truly just blenderized foods, in my opinion, again, Our Real Food Blends is one company, and then a second one is called Functional Formularies. Both of those companies have products that are only blended food and also meet a lot of different concerns. So Functional Formularies has products that are organic. Both companies have products that are vegan. So it really gives consumers variety and choice that I think is important as well. I have two final questions for you. One has to do with how we speak to our clients or patients whose medical staff might be telling them something else. So oftentimes we'll have people who recognize this on their own and they come forward and they want something different, but people are still very swayed by what their doctors or the hospital staff are telling them. We don't want to be in the position of convincing people, but how do we make recommendations for what we know can be best for long-term health outcomes? That is my favorite question so far today. Because what I want to point out about this whole blenderized tube feeding movement is that it really has come from a grassroots effort of parents of tube-fed children as well as people with feeding tubes. So it really speaks to the power that people have to advocate for themselves because a decade ago, clinicians were really hesitant to work with blenderized tube feeding Now they're becoming increasingly more approachable. So right off the bat, we have to kind of, you know, tip our hats to the the moms, the dads, the caregivers, the patients, the consumers who have really advocated for this modality of feeding. And what I can say is that if you're advocating for yourself with blenderized tube feeding, I think putting it in the context of this just makes sense to clinicians can make it more palatable for them. So what I mean by that is relating it to how people eat by mouth, you know, well, how would your recommendations differ if myself or my loved one didn't have a feeding tube? So that really gets them thinking in the context of, well, you know, I don't recommend people who eat by mouth just drink feeding tube formulas. So why should I push this onto my individuals with a feeding tube? So I think Relating it to how people eat by mouth and how recommendations differ 
And then I also think getting an advocate on your side is really important. So there are definitely lots of nutritionists and dietitians out there who are pro blenderized tube feeding and who are more than willing to talk things over with clinicians who may be hesitant or physicians who may be hesitant. So I'm saying that because I don't think the responsibility should solely be on the consumer or their loved ones. Like I really think we as nutritionists and healthcare professionals need to meet consumers where they're at. So I think finding an advocate out there is, is an important thing to do as well. Yeah. And I mean, this podcast acts as an advocate that other clinicians can share with their clients and patients to introduce them in a very palatable form to the possibility if it's scary. Is there anything else, Dan, that you wish more clinicians knew about tube feeding that would help us to kind of ride this wave or push this wave forward back to Whole Foods? I think when I talk to clinicians about blenderized tube feeding, one of the main things they say to me is, I don't have any patients or consumers who would be interested in this, which is emphatically not true. If you look at research that's out there, it shows that the overwhelming majority of people with a feeding tube would rather use blenderized tube feeding through their tube versus a formula. So whenever I get that response, the first thing I ask is, well, have you asked them if this is something that they're interested in? Research has demonstrated that despite the overwhelming majority of consumers wanting to utilize blenderized tube feeding, only around 25% of healthcare professionals are comfortable with recommending this modality. So I encourage any healthcare professionals who are on potentially listening to this to really ask your consumer what they want to do and really meet them with what works best for them. Yeah, bam, that was the mic drop moment. Thank you so much, Dan. Such important work, and I really appreciate your insights today. Thank you so much. It's been great talking. The 15-Minute Matrix is hosted and produced by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The podcast is edited and mixed by Brian Paik of Pacific Audio, and special thanks to Natalie Merrill, Alia Hale, Pamela Geismar, and Rowan Bradley for their support in making the 15-Minute Matrix possible. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to see the completed functional nutrition matrix that accompanies today's or any episode, be sure to head over to the podcast website. Again, that's 15minutematrix.com. We love when you share our episodes with your friends and colleagues, leave a review and rate the show. That helps us to grow our collective message that functional nutrition is the future of healthcare. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Functional Nutrition Alliance, and you can follow me at Andrea Nakayama. 
And if you or someone you know is interested in becoming a functional nutrition counselor, head over to fxnutrition.com to learn more about our Full Body Systems program. Full Body Systems is our 10-month immersion course where you'll learn the systems-based approach to addressing the root causes of your client's issues through client education, diet, and lifestyle modification. Again, you can always learn more at fxnutrition.com.